Two men brought together by a love of film geekery. Yes, it's The Film File. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome. Yes, it's The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. And thank you, as ever, for joining us on this paradise in a world of craziness. This this home from home for lovers of all things geekery, film geekery. As it was last week, chaos in amongst a world of paradise, because uh, the, the tech issues last week were fun. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed. So far, so good. <laughs> we are, yeah, who knows what happened last week? Who knows? I had a huge chunk of various random audio files to make sense of last week. That was a, you, you a did, stunning edit. You did a great job, sir. There was a particular audio file that I sent you a clip of, which was, uh, we're not going to repeat it on air, but let's just... Just say that when Lee kept dropping out, I could still he was still recording his audio, so I got all of the things they were saying. And like it was like, oh, I've gone down again. Oh, this is ridiculous. And then there was on the fourth time that it happened, he let out a very amusing expletive <laughs> as soon as it went down. Think Martin Scorsese <laughs> level expletive. Think Goodfellas. <laughs> it wouldn't have been out of place. Yeah, it was it was frustrating, and, and and I can't even tell you why. Nothing has changed within the household. The only thing that I can put it down to is uh, we have been recording later in the day for the past few weeks, and we've had a few issues, and we know that a certain broadband service throttles its traffic at certain times of the day. Yeah, and it's very possible that you'll get affected by that. Yes. Because I know we've had this issue in the past where the traffic was getting throttled and causing a bit of a delay. I think it might be down to that. So we're recording at our normal time today. Yes. It's already been a busy morning for me. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, say too much. But I, as you know, dear listeners, I uh, I work on a part time level for the BBC as a commentator on all things film and television, mainly television these days. I always used to be film, but now it's mainly television. And I um, I got poised with a question that I didn't know I was going to be talking about on one particular BBC radio station about a show that I, um, I don't know a lot about. And I had to go into full overdrive of, I think there's, there's almost a board game in this. What am I talking about by listening to other people talk about it? It's something you and I, it's a film file board game that we can invent, Andy. Picking uh, oh, up, up information from what other people are telling you, you've got to figure out what it is. And I, and I did that masterfully. I, I think I, I, I was invited back. So yeah, I'm not even going to tell you the name of the show because in case I know that we get some traffic from, uh, from my radio appearances. So I don't want to, don't want to shoot myself in the foot too much. <laughs> my week this week has been battling toothache. Oh no, nothing worse than toothache. Man, it's it, yesterday at work was just a nightmare, but I did have a good day early in the week for Halloween. I dressed up as Freddy oh, in the right. cinema. Not as a clown. Don't start. And <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've spent decent money on my Freddy costume. You know, my mask cost a fair bit. I've got a deep, really good sweater, proper woolen knit one. And I've got like metal clawed gloves. And it was a great night. I was p- patrolling around for a good few hours over the main walk-ins, fully masked up. People asking for photos with me. Brilliant. I saw some people who I knew from like past jobs come in. And because I knew them by name, they didn't know who I was behind there. So I was just like leaning out going, hello, Jonathan. I'm your dream lover. <laughs> just getting the looks of like, what on earth is going and then they would suddenly get go, is that Andy? He's like, yeah, well, how are you doing, mate? They say, I hope that's Andy. <laughs> I had one guy who came through. I was checking the tickets and he had get one guy come around the corner. And um, 
the expletive that he gave out was very similar to the one that you gave out when the, the feed went down <laughs> last week. <laughs> uh, but it was a really good night. Got really good response. I had some people say that's a really good mask, to which I generally respond like, "What mask?" <laughs> you got to. It's the old, the old classic. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we didn't get much in the way of trick or treaters because the weather was so lousy. Oh, what a shame, eh? Uh, and I, I was prepared. Uh, I was you, have, prepared. you have to have all those sweets yourself. Yeah, I'm not a big sweet eater. But uh, I, I mean, Halloween for me was that, I, as I said last week, I was so tired because we played a Halloween gig, and with the Alice Cooper tribute, Halloween yeah. is our Christmas, so we were we were so busy last weekend. Uh, but no, I'm I'm always up. It's interesting to to see how Halloween has become a thing because it wasn't when I was mm. a kid. It was uh, it wasn't trick or treat. I mean, it's certainly become a holiday. And, and I'm all for it, actually. There's a bit of iconography, but uh, I didn't see much in the way of, of fantastic costumes. When you see some of the celeb-style costumes that yeah. people publish, you know, there are some good ones out there. And yeah. uh, they do tie into into a good bit of geekery. I don't think we've gone full American style of Halloween yet, but it has fed through over the past few decades, that whole trick-and-treat aspect. Because in America, it's pretty much everyone dresses up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a holiday, it's probably holiday night. People decorate the, their gardens in fabulous ways, and I, I'm not really big on people knocking on my door and begging for sweets. Yeah. But it, it seems that in this country now, they've kind of adopted that if you've got like a lit pumpkin outside your door, then you yeah. go and trick-or-treat. But if you haven't got anything outside your door... Don't bother disturbing them because yeah, they're probably a, just watching TV. And I, I like the fact that a lot of people are kind of adhering to that. It's like if it doesn't look like you want to celebrate it, then no one disturbs you. Yeah. And that's how it should be because not yeah. everyone wants to get involved in it. We're not like America where everyone, everyone gets involved in it. Yeah. You know, people get people giving out sweets or syringes or whatever they decide to give out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and other urban legends. But I, t- I tend to work them, and I just have fun with, like, you know, the staff. We do an open invite for the staff to dress up as long as it's uh, appropriate. And this year was a chance to really break out my uh, my Freddy costume, which has had a few refinements over the year, and uh, went down a treat. Yeah, good. I mean, I, say... I make a great Freddy. I was walking round with, a like, a slight lean to one side the next day when I was off work. I was walking around the kitchen with one of my arms draped longer than the other. I was like, what am I doing? It's like, I'm not wearing the glove. I don't need to walk like this anymore <laughs> isn't that one of the sequels wasn't that the second sequel where a kid gets infected by the spirit of freddy yeah hey, it's been so long we should address it at some point <laughs> as one of our deep dives because this is why you do join us not to talk about halloween or our health issues i could go on there <laughs> but <laughs> we are going to talk about films and what have we got for you in this week's show yes we've got a whole bundle of news and box office we've got a deep dive this week into Michael Mann's interesting, yes, you could say that, The Keep. We have got reviews in which Andy will be talking about... Enola Holmes 2 that landed on streaming on Netflix this week. My Policeman that was on limited release at the cinemas for the past few weeks and is now on Amazon Prime. And it's available for rental in the UK. Let's talk about Hellraiser. We'll both be sharing our love for the new season of what we do in the shadows. But of course, before any of that, we've got much, much more in the way of the news. So after the disappointment of Black Adam, is it still in the number one position? Because as far as I know, are there any takers? So in the US for the third weekend in the row, Black Adam tops the box office. 
which isn't a huge achievement given that it's been a relatively quiet couple of weeks. Um, it took another 18.3 million this weekend in the US. It's now standing on 137 million from the US alone and up to 321 million worldwide, which given the budget was over 200 million, still leaves it hanging short from actually making it into profit. One Piece Phil Red, the anime, goes in at second place with 9.3 million, showing once again that animes are building quite a solid and dependable audience to, whilst not take top spots at the box office, still deliver some pretty respectable numbers. Ticket to Paradise holds in at third place, another 8.5 million added to its total. Smile is in fourth place with 4 million added to its total. It's now up to 202 million worldwide. Pretty strong effort for a low-budget horror. And Pray for the Devil in fifth place with 3.9 million. Here in the UK, again, Black Adam retains the top spot for the third weekend, adding a further 2 million to its total. Within the DC Extended Universe in the UK, it's overtaken Suicide Squad, and it looks set to overtake Justice League, which finished on 17.4 million by the end of its run. La La Crocodile is holding in at second place for its fourth weekend since release. It dropped 35% to add another 975k to its total. Banshees of Inishirin sticks in at number three with a drop of only 24%. It's added another 969,000 total. Bill Nye's Living is the highest new opener in fourth place, taking 664k. And another new opener follows in at number five. It's that one piece film red, 559k. Again, as with America, the anime crowd are dependable to make, make a top five success of pretty much any of the anime releases of recent years. So Black Adam, by all accounts, will be over and done with by next week, I'm assuming, Andy, with the big release of Wakanda Forever. But interesting days for Warner Discovery ahead uh, with some interesting cancellations, may I add? Yes. Um, Zaslav has been speaking at the quarter three earnings call this week about the focuses for Warner Brothers Discovery, who have been through a bit of a rough few months with chops, cuts, pushbacks, and so on. Are we talking about Warners or are we talking about Twitter right now? (laughs) (laughs) Strange days that we live in. It really is. Zaslav said, we haven't had a Superman movie in 13 years. We haven't done a Harry Potter movie in 15 years. The DC movies and the Harry Potter movies provided a lot of the profits of Warner Brothers motion pictures over the last 25 years. So a focus on franchise. One of the big advantages that we have, House of the Dragon is an example of that. Game of Thrones taking advantage of Sex and the City, Lord of the Rings. We still have the right to do Lord of the Rings movies. What are the movies that have brands that are understood and loved everywhere in the world? A focus on the big movies that are loved, that are tentpoled, that people are going to leave early from dinner to go to see. And we have a lot of them. Batman, Superman, Aquaman. If we can do something with JK, uh, speaking about JK Rowling, obviously, on Harry Potter going forward, Lord of the Rings, what are we going to do with Game of Thrones? What are we doing with a lot of the big franchises we have? We're focused on franchises. Now, a quick point on, on, on his wording there. We haven't had a Superman movie in 13 years. Man of Steel was in 2013, so that's nine years. Nine years, yeah. I was, I was, you know, when you were saying that, Andy, I was trying to figure it out because I'm thinking, it's not 13 years since Man of Steel came out. I couldn't remember the exact year, but I remember where we were 13 years ago and we'd not even yep. ventured into the world of the DCU that it became. And we haven't done a Harry Potter movie in 15 years. So Deathly Hallows Part 2 was 2011. So that's 
11 years. So either Zaslav has got a time machine and has got confused, or he's really terrible at math. And that will kind of explain why Warner Brothers Discovery is in such a mess at this point in time. He probably cancelled Batgirl because he thought it only cost $90 to make. So it was an instant write-off, not $90 million. The, the guy clearly can't count. So uh, this doesn't bode well. for the, And everyone on, online has picked up on the nonsense that he said. Because it's like, okay, so you say there's no Harry Potter, but what about the Fantastic Beasts franchise? Which leads to... Well, it looks like the Fantastic Beast franchise appears to be at an end following the third film, which was considered to be a disappointment. Yes, it was a huge disappointment box office-wise. I mean, the Harry Potter franchise has always been like, you know, one of the one of the biggest earners for Warner Brothers. And the Fantastic Beast franchise has rapidly dropped in box office revenue over the three films and critical response to them has been what are these films supposed to be why are they here why do they exist now i know that zaslav said that he wants to see a return to harry potter and he wants to work with jk i know for years there's been speculation that the cursed child should come to the screen but jk rowling's been very adamant that that stays stage only i think that that's what he's hoping to be able to get get her to get it get back involved whether the original cast would come back because they've all been quite outspoken against jk rowling over recent years because of shall i say her problematic viewpoints on trans people yeah i mean you are allowed unless let's be honest i might disagree with her she's allowed to have a, a, a point of view i mean she's she has a point of view that we are also allowed to debate and discuss with her. Uh, yeah. Not pull her down or attack her for that, but to debate it. And she's she's allowed that point of view. I'm allowed to disagree with her point of view. And so there is a stalemate. But I, I, I could go down a completely different uh, uh, rabbit warren about people allow, allowing to express their points of view. But getting back to film, I think that... does it Does it seem to you, Andy, that the Harry Potter franchise has just reached a natural conclusion. There's a natural end to it. And everything else starts to feel like cheap tie-ins. Well, the Fantastic Beasts series definitely feels like a cheap tie-in because it's trying to tell a backstory that we already kind of know anyway and don't really need fleshing out in such a way. And people don't seem to care. Yeah, there's no one in there that anyone actually latches onto and thinks, well, that's a great character. Except for, you know, Dumbledore when he pops up played by Jude Law. Great. But... That's one shining gem in what is a bit of a mess of a franchise. It, people who want Harry, more Harry Potter, they want more Harry Potter. About to say exactly the same thing. I, I kind of think that maybe The Cursed Child done as two films on the big screen, picking up the characters years down the line and with their kids involved, that's the kind of thing that will draw people back to it. But as it stands, no, it's it's a franchise that just hasn't got a hasn't got the pull anymore. Yeah, it's it's based around this character of Harry Potter. That's who my belief is that, that the people love. They saw that character, they grew with that character, and they were interested in that character and the world around them and the dynamics of those characters. So yeah, seeing more of, of the world makes sense from a, a commercial idea, but it is Harry Potter that, that everybody loved. You could revisit the world in an interesting way, but it would have to be uh, something something very, very different, or something that hopefully, rather than coming in and saying, let's create a new franchise, start a project and then go, you know, people have, uh, have loved that, that character, let's tell more about it. Yeah. At the same time, Warner Brothers Discovery have continued the cancellations of various shows, most of them around the HBO Max output. So the long-mooted Degrassi revival 
which was ordered to full series back in January, has been chopped. Um, the animated Char- Charlotte's Web series that was going to get done by HBO Max has been cut. Has it? I thought that was finished. I thought that was that was done. Well, it's it's uh, been binned off now. That's gone. And most disappointing for me and fellow fans of the show, Westworld will not be seeing its season five, which was intended to be the final season to tie up all the loose ends. I was about to mention that with the story that the cast have still been paid. Yes, the cast are still going to get that because they've recently re-signed up for the potential for the series. So they're going to be getting their fees for that fifth season, even though the fifth season's not going ahead. Um, It's all cost-cutting. And Westworld, it started off with strong viewing figures, but it petered off. And by the final season, it was struggling. But it was always hoped that just for the prestige that it gets, it gets a lot of critical acclaim, that they'd at least give it one more season to finish it all off, because it was always intended as a five-season show. Whether it can get shipped round to other outputs, we don't know at this point in time, or whether they'll end up adapting it in like comic book or novel format or audio play format for the final season. But another show that it left a lot hanging on that final episode and it's never going to be answered. This is the OA all over again. This is frustrating me immensely and I'm so disappointed. It's a really big shame. I get why people walked away from the series like halfway through season two and then for season three. Season three in particular was a bit of a mess. I had problems with season three. I thought it redeemed itself with season four. Yeah, season four. I mean, it it sagged a bit in the midpoint, but it opened strong and it finished fantastically. So. Season five was just just there within reach, but it's been pulled pulled the plug, and we're gonna we're probably gonna see this with a lot more HBO Max things and Warner projects in the coming months because Zaslav is purely focused at the moment on cost cutting. They need to recoup a lot of money. They need to stop spending so much money. He said that the era where they're just throwing lots of money at the streaming services and just making any projects has now gone. They're now going to be a bit more focused because they need to make sure that it's worth the money. So we've not heard the last of the problems of Warner Brothers Discovery. And this is going to be continuing all through next year. We do know that the the four films that they've got in the pipeline from DC are still going to be coming out next year. That's uh, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which is finished. It's wrapped. It, post-production's all done. It's basically sat there waiting to get released. Uh, the Flash, which <laughs> might get some more reshoots. We don't know at this point in time. Aquaman 2 and uh, Blue Beetle, which I'm glad that Blue Beetle remains within there. But that's the only four projects that we know are still definitely going ahead. I don't think they dare touch any more DC properties after the cancellations of the Batman animated series and, of course, Batgirl without causing a huge, furious outcry. We know that Superman's coming back at some point. We don't know when. Well, did you see James Gunn's tweet this week? Which one? He... Well, it's the start of his new job, basically. Yeah. So he, he tweeted a, a Superman comic panel as his uh, official start of his new job, which was uh, Clark Kent typing away at a typewriter from a <laughs> 1950s comic which you know seems to pour more fuel on the fire that henry cavell is definitely definitely now coming back yeah in a man of steel 2 movie cavell has said in an interview as well this week that he kept a gentle hold on the character of superman always hopeful that he'd get a chance to reprise it that's why he he didn't get involved much in the promoting of the um, Snyder Cut aspect because he didn't want to create some negativity between him and Warners. He's played it smart. He just wants to return to that character. And he stayed at the distance, but just always like, I'm available if you want me. I'm available if you want me. And thankfully, it looks like it's going to happen. But when? 
is unclear at this point in time. Warner Brothers are still not committed to a fixed release date for its upcoming adaptation of Salem's Lot as well, which uh, was originally supposed to be out round about now, but it's got pushed back to sometime next year. Did you see the interview with uh, Lewis Pullman as he's doing the rounds at the moment? He's yes. saying that the new adaptation will be very faithful to the Stephen King novel. Yep. Um, it's going to be a single standalone film, not split into two, but it's trying to keep more faithful. Does that mean that we're not going to get the Nosferatu-esque? Well, we've seen it, haven't we? Um, we know that the reason that they did that for the TV series it was a different take than the, the than the book. So by looking at the casting, for instance, I think they're going to go in closer to the idea of what the lead vampire is about. This bit getting pushed back with release date, and I know originally they said second quarter of next year. I can see this getting held off until next Halloween. Yeah, I can see them waiting until October and dropping it then because I know horror films come out throughout the year, but if you drop a horror film over the October period you're guaranteed success. And Warners, at this point in time, need to be guaranteed success on both their big and small projects. Just while we're we're still in the land of of Warners, Premier Day has finally been confirmed for The Last of Us. At last, it's for (laughs) us. It's happening. And that is, it's going to be released in January, January the 15th on HBO Max. So we can only assume that it will more than likely go to Sky in the UK. Yeah. Uh, Sky Atlantic, because that's what they have an exclusive with. Um, And I mean, it might not be on HBO Max, but it is a DC property and Sandman season two is coming. Yes, it got confirmed this week by creator Neil Gaiman that season two of the Sandman is uh, coming to Netflix because I, I am so enjoying the Sandman. There's so much more of that world to be adapted, examined, I'm I'm so pleased because it's been it's been a great series. It it captured yeah. everything. It, it was so faithful in every little minute detail. And and sometimes taking expectation of one particular story and weaving it in a slightly different way, but still being faithful and true to its origins. Yeah, in Neil Gaiman's own words, there are some astonishing stories waiting for Morpheus and the rest of them. Now it's time to get back to work. There's a family meal ahead and Lucifer is waiting for Morpheus to return to hell. I'm excited. It it looks great as well. I mean, that's the thing is that the show looks sumptuous, really solid production. We've been waiting for this news for ages because it's been a success. Yeah, it's had a very good critical response. It had very good uh, tracking figures for viewership. It was just bizarre that it took them this long before they went, yeah, go on then, have a second season. So that's something to look forward to in the coming years. Absolutely. And it is going to be the coming years because it's not going to happen overnight. That kind of detail and scale of production, I'm suggesting off the top of my head, 2024. Yeah, it sounds about right. The Boys spin-off Gen V has uh, started casting. Now, this spin-off is going to be set at America's only college exclusively for young adult superheroes. Where could it all go wrong? It's it's the boys. Anything can go wrong. (laughs) Gen V is dubbed an irreverent R-rated series that explores the lives of hormonal competitive soups as they put their boundaries to the test and compete for the best contracts in the best cities. Part college show, part Hunger Games, with all the heart, satire and raunch of the main series. And its cast, Clancy Brown. Ah, the great Clancy Brown. I remember being on the set of Highlander as a young boy and Clancy Brown was so scary. I saw him one day, didn't speak to him. I was still too scared, but he he stayed in character all the time. Oh, he's he's a great actor. Whenever he pops up in any films, and he's been in a wealth of uh, my favourite B-movie sci-fis through the years, and I just love what he brings to it. Uh, He's clearly going to be one of the... um, 
teaching staff or instructors within this academy because he can't he can't get away with being a hormonal teen. Uh, but I'd be interested to see it. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so they've started casting. Uh, we should start seeing that going into production pretty soon. We were both big fans of A Quiet Place. We were both kind of fans of the second story. And we've been talking about this on the show for ages, A Quiet Place, day one. Anyway, we've got some casting as it's still in development. And uh, Lupita Nyong'o has been cast in the lead role. Great actress. Uh, I'm, I'm always interested to see what she brings to the projects that she's in. And I'm interested to see more world building. I mean, this is going to be kind of a prequel, like setting around like what happened at the start, which we saw glimpses of yeah. at the beginning of that second film, which was interesting enough to make you go, wow, this is where humanity started to fall apart. It can th This has potential to do something that feels a little different within that same world setting because it's the start of the decimation of humankind and the learning about how the aliens basically hunt. I'm all for it. I'm all for for more quiet place world building and expansion out. Danny Boyle. Oh, he's been quiet for some time. He's uh, tempted to make a new sequel to 28 Days Later. Well, we said it was on the cards when we did it as part of our deep dive. So it's one of those, I'm surprised and yet strangely not surprised. The original film came out in 2002. Uh, the first My sequel goodness. came out in 2007. Uh, but apparently Alex Garland has already penned 28 months later. And in Danny Boyle's words, I'd be very tempted to direct it. It feels like a very good time, actually. It's funny. I hadn't thought about it until you just said it. I remembered Bang, this script, which is, again, set in England, very much about England. One of the things that's happening in the business at the moment is it has to be a big reason for you to go to the cinema. It's hard for companies distributing films and for cinema chains to show films. They're struggling to get people into the cinema unless it's something like a Top Gun Maverick or a Marvel. But a third part would get people in if it was half decent. So... Not only is he tempted to pick it up and direct it, because he didn't direct the second one, he just no, produced he it, but he's very tempted to direct this third part. But he definitely what has his eye focused on getting it as a cinema release. He doesn't want it to be for streaming. He thinks it should be a spectacle on the screen. And I'm all for it. Look out, Tokyo, because there is confirmation of a new Godzilla movie. Yes, Toho Studios, the originator of the original Godzilla. You know, the big giant lizard with atomic breath. He's a rumbling back into create more mayhem in Japan. Last seen in Adam Wingard's American outing of Godzilla vs. Kong, which currently there is a sequel in the works, the team at Japanese film company Toho have now confirmed a new Godzilla flick is coming next year. In recent years, the Godzilla franchise has kind of, you, you know, we've got the US version of it, but there has been ones coming from the Japanese shores. And the, they're a far cry from that early years of man in a rubber suit bouncing around on top of like the same model set every time and always trashing that same Texaco Which I garage. love. I absolutely adore. So don't expect it to be that cheap and cheerful. Expect it to be... It, it, it's more getting back to the message of that first Godzilla film about, you know, man versus nature and man's destruction of the planet, etc. So it, it's used as a metaphor. I'm, I'm interested to see what Toho do because they really, really pushed what Godzilla's about. I'd like it to have some cheesiness every now and then. You've got to have a bit of cheesiness in there. We've got to have monster smackdowns because that's what most people watch Godzilla for. Let's keep an eye on this one. Yeah, I mean, last time they did a live action Godzilla movie was 2016 Shin Godzilla. Have you, did you ever yeah. see that, by the way? Yes, that was it's very a great good. great movie. It's a very different approach to the Godzilla legacy. Yeah. And 
uh, it was interesting. Not always successful, but it was interesting. And, and that we had was a combination of CG and Man in a Suit. More Godzilla than what you can shake your big lizard at. Sky and Peacock are moving forwards on a TV adaptation of Frederick Forsyth's Day of the Jackal. Great film. The original film was fantastic. Top Boy showrunner Ronan Bennett is attached to this contemporary reimagining of the assassin thriller. The original follows a professional assassin who's contracted by French paramilitary dissident to kill French President Charles de Gaulle. The property has been adapted twice to the screen. Twice. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I almost forgot about the Bruce Willis one. <laughs> it's, wor- it's worth forgetting. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, yeah, there's the great 1973 Edward Fox-led film, which yeah. is what most people recognize the name with. A TV series adaptation gives it a chance to flesh out a bit. Let's see how this works out. And pe- sticking with Peacock, the upcoming The Continental miniseries, which is a prequel to John Wick franchise, has now been set to stream on Amazon Prime. Oh, that's good. It's Lionsgate and Peacock. We're producing the three episodes, which was originally supposed to go on Stars, but has since shifted to Peacock and is expected to come out sometime next year. Uh, it will see Colin Woodle star as a younger version of Ian McShane's Winston Scott character, which will follow Winston through the underworld of 1970s New York, battling demons from his past as he attempts to seize control of the hotel, the Continental, the hotel that serves as that safe zone meeting point for the world's most dangerous criminals. Supporting cast includes names such as Mel Gibson, Ben Robson, Hubert Point de Jure, Jessica Villain, Michelle Prada, Nyung Kate, and Peter Green. So it's stacked quite well with some faces, if not names, that you recognise. And come on, it's a three-part prequel miniseries to John Wick. Of course I'm on board. You know, for somebody who's apparently been cancelled, Mel Gibson's in an awful lot of movies these days. <laughs> He's done well over the past few years. It's interesting because he had so many people like pulling him up on like all the, he needs to be cancelled for this. And everyone kind of just forgot about it and just went, Eh, just let him get on with being a, an actor. I think it's kind of been known that Mel Gibson has been problematic in his personal life for quite a few decades. But yeah. it's it, he's one of those people who people are willing to separate the art from the artist and still enjoy the films that he delivers. I've got some very quick casting bullet points. Uh, <laughs> Mads Mikkelsen is to lead Brian Fuller's new film, Dust Bunny. Do you know about that one? Uh, I'd heard, I don't know much about it, but Mads Mikkelsen reteaming with Brian Fuller, I mean, the, the pair worked on Hannibal, is just a match made in heaven. We also know that uh, Brian Fuller is on board as writer, showrunner and exec producer of a new Friday the 13th prequel series from A24, which is for the streaming service Peacock. So knowing how Brian Fuller shows go, that will go to two seasons <laughs> of which Brian Fuller will have quit halfway through the first season and then it'll get cancelled. Yeah. And apparently <laughs> there's no Jason and apparently there's no Hockey Mask, but the series is called Crystal Lake. Interesting. Florence Pugh is starring in Alexander Skarsgård's The Pack. She's not short for work these days, is she? She's doing no, remarkably she's, well. Amazing. She's gone from strength to strength. Amazing, amazing actor. Jeff Goldblum is joining the cast of John M. Chu's Two Wicked Movies. Goldblum will be playing The Wizard, who, spoiler alerts, if you've not seen the original stage show, read the book, seen The Wizard of Oz, seen any of the remakes, any of the cartoons, he's going to be playing uh, a human con man who uses trickery and machinery to rule Oz and control the residents there. I mean, that sounds like ideal casting. It's it's Jeff. <laughs> he just has to turn it's, up on set and that's it himself. just Jeff. Anything that's got Jeff in it, I'm halfway there. And the good place as William Jackson Harper has snagged a mystery role in Ant-Man and the Wasp, 
Quantumania. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, isn't this going to be released next year? And haven't we already seen a trailer? Yep, I'm as in the dark as you are. Sticking with casting drop-ins, Donald Glover appears to be set for the Community movie. Harmon has said at a oh, keynote great. speech this week, for lack of a better word, there was a ball fumbled. Glover is down to clown. Man, I would not want to think about making the movie without Donald. So that pretty much says he's definitely on board. On board. Yeah. Bob Odenkirk of Better Call Saul fame is rumoured to be in negotiations to pop up in the upcoming Wonder Man television series for Marvel. Oh, yeah. We didn't mention the casting for that, did we, last week? Because I think it landed after we recorded the show. Yep. I mean, it's already stacked up. Yaha Abdul-Mateen II for the lead role of Simon Williams, a.k.a. Wonder Man. And Ben Kingsley is going to return as Trevor Slattery. We love Trevor. We love Trevor. It's looking like Odenkirk might be playing the role of Neil Sayerer, the agent of Williams, who's an actor by trade, who also became a criminal mastermind in the comics. It's interesting. And I, I've not been following the story on social media that, the character of Simon Williams in the comics is a is a, a white character. Has there been any kickback about uh, a black actor, or has the actor won so much credit and so much love for Watchmen, Aquaman, and everything else he's been in? Uh, has that just risen above the potential critique of this sort of casting? I've not seen much kickback, but that might be a lot to do with the fact that Wonder Man isn't a very well known comic book character outside of the very small minority who ever read anything with him in it he only became interesting when they started to sort of spoof this idea of him being an actor you get you get the kickback when it's a more well-established character that is in the public domain so if you say there's a black superman people kick back if you say we're going to make uh, iron man black it kick back i mean they got away with um nick fury yeah yeah i always go to nick fury when people talk about recasting elements and and heimdall they got away with by putting Idris Elba in there, because lesser-known characters. Because it's basically people who don't read comics who start complaining that they're changing these comic book characters that they don't read anyway and they don't know anything about. I'm all for just casting someone who's a great actor to represent a comic book character. And Yaha Abdul-Mateen II is a perfect fit for me, for Wonder Man. Absolutely perfect. Aubrey Plaza is going to be joining Agatha's Coven of Chaos. Yes, heard that. I like her. Uh, I think she can do comedy really, really well. And then when you put her in a dramatic role, she brings something quite unique to that. We don't know what her character is going to be yet, but we don't know a lot about Coven of Chaos at this point in time. But we'll start to get news filtering through in the coming months. And Game of Thrones's Kit Harrington, who we saw crop up in The Eternals as Dane Whitman, doesn't quite know whether he's got any future at Marvel. Okay. He's apparently, he's been speaking with THR to promote his upcoming indie thriller, Blood for Dust. But in his words, I don't know anything further. I know that there are plans, I think at some point, but I don't know what they are. I wasn't that interested in rocking up in a Marvel movie just to play someone's boyfriend. I knew of some future possibilities. So that's always been part of the conversation. But like with anything, you don't really know. You sort of do your research on what character it could be and you go, oh, that looks quite fun. But it's up to them whether they want to bring that person into their plans. I don't know at this stage. I have no idea what their plans are. So it sounds like there's no buzz on the Black Knight at all being brought back into the MCU. Unless it's a Marvel thing. <laughs> he's just uh, he's just playing coy like they all get told to do. And uh, most most of them stick to their script, except for Tom Holland, who just can't help but get enthusiastic and drop spoilers <laughs> left, right and centre. Hey, Jean-Claude Van Damme, you remember old Jean-Claude? Well, he's set to return to the big screen for an action neo-noir thriller Darkness of Man. It's been some time since we've seen um, uh, Jean-Claude on the big screen. He did a TV series, which nobody watched. 
I remember that. Yeah, um, I, I caught a few episodes of it, and it was quite interesting because he was kind of playing a version of himself. Yeah. But it, it was one of them that the initial concept would have worked well for a movie, the same way that we've just seen Nicolas Cage this year um, play himself in a movie. Stretching out to a series... I lost interest after the second episode. Yeah. I mean, that might just be because I've never really understood the fascination with Jean-Claude Van Damme, to be honest <laughs> yeah. with you. The guy can do the split. Well done. You don't have Even to demonstrate it in every film. <laughs> Last bit of casting news from myself is that, yeah, you know that I've got my eye on the Gran Turismo film. You know that I'm quite excited to see what they can do with it, especially with the names involved. But they've now added... and. This is an interesting bit of casting. Ginger Spice herself, Jerry Halliwell, has been added to the cast. And I'm not sure how I feel about her as an actress. <laughs> well, we've never really seen her do anything particular in, in acting. I'm not saying that she can't. I mean, if I remember correctly, most of the Spice Girls were pulled from sort of theatre schools. So they all had the ability to do a little bit of acting, from, from what I remember. And, and guys, if you're a massive Spice Girls fan, you know, let me know, because I, I, I wasn't. But I believe that some of them came from sort of a theatre school background. So, yeah. um, you know, it's been that long since the Spice Girls have, are out of public recognition to a degree that I, I don't think it really matters. I think it's just going to be one of those casting elements. More interestingly is uh, that Jaimon Hanso has joined the cast as well. Yeah, always a solid actor. Uh, what is interesting with the Jerry, Jerry Halliwell casting, though, is her partner is Christian Horner who was the former racing driver and is currently the team principal of the Red Bull Formula One team. Oh, I see. So that's possibly part of the casting reasons is that what she brings from the... not She's obviously got knowledge of the racing industry as a result of being married to someone so connected to it, and that can bring something into it. So there's, there's clearly a reasons why these casting decisions are made. Uh, Jaiman Hounsou, always happy to see on screen. Um, I'm just excited to see... This whole, well, it's more or less a rags to riches story. It's someone video gaming who en enters the uh, GT Academy competitions and became a famous racing driver. It's based on an actual true story, but it gives a chance for a proper wish fulfillment film, but with some great racing moments. And I love watching racing things on screen. So that is, though there's not much of it, but it is the news. <laughs> So if you like the ramblings and thoughts of two film geeks and you want to join in and be part of the Film File family, a little bit like the Fantastic Four, except there are just two of us, then all you have to do is to become part of that family is subscribe, if you haven't already done so, to the Film File. Head over to your favourite podcast platform, search for the Film File, hit that subscription button and remember to leave a like and become a friend of the show. And if you're already a friend, Hey, why not tell one of your friends who will tell one of their friends? And before long, we've taken over the world. A world full of geeks. What a nice place. But if you want to become even more embedded into the world of the film file, all you've got to do is this. Head on over to Twitter. We're still on there. We've not evacuated it yet. Uh, yet. We might be paying for a blue tick ourselves at some point, just for laughs. Head over to Twitter. You can follow us at Film File UK. You can find us on other social media platforms. Just search for Film File UK and we should pop up. Or you can get in touch with us directly via email. Yes, fire us an email with any thoughts, suggestions, your top films of 2022. We'd love to know what your top five films that you've seen from this year are. Podcast at filmfile.uk is the address to send it to. And we'd love to hear from you. You can also listen to The Film File on No Barriers Radio every Thursday at 8 o'clock. 
That's nobarriersradio.com. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. And this week's is, well, it's a bit of a cult classic. We're going to take you back to 1983 for a dark fantasy horror film written and directed by Michael Mann, starring Scott Glenn, Gabriel Byrne, Jürgen Prinschau, and Sir Ian McKellen. It is an adaptation of the 1981 novel of the same name, The Key. This place was not built to keep anything out. This place was built to keep something in. You must not stay here. Something has been released. Something. Did you find what you were looking for? Did you expect to find me? What are you? Whatever kills us gets in anyway. Nothing we do, no security works. You're saying it's a film called The Keep, directed by Michael Mann, came out in 1983. How come I have never heard of such film? Well, it's a cult classic. It came out in 1983 to very mixed reviews. Those of us who've seen it consider it to be a strangely interesting failure. Some of us who've just seen it are thinking, why the heck did Lee make me watch this? Andy, welcome to the world of the key. <laughs> well, after I watched this, I had echoes of Buckaroo Banzai all over again, where I'm just like, why does Lee love this film? <laughs> I was bewildered with what I'd watched on screen. I, I love Michael Mann. We've spoken about Michael Mann multiple times on the show throughout the months that we've been here. Well... 142 episodes worth. Um, anytime that man has been mentioned to be involved in something, you know how excited we get. And this was one of the only things from his back catalogue that I've got no experience of. And I'd heard, not just from yourself, I've heard from so many people through the years, oh man, you need to see The Keep. And all that I can think is like, oh man, you people haven't watched The Keep yourselves, have you? Because this was a mess. I can understand why it's a mess though, because after I watched it, I did some reading up on the problems with it. Now, just to give some background to the film itself. So from what I can grasp from the plot, a German platoon reside in a keep that has an interior solid wall that's bigger than the exterior wall, which has strange crosses on, which is containing some dark, malevolent presence. However, the greed of the Germans in trying to strip silver gets the better of a few of the guards, and they unwittingly let this supernatural presence out that takes a strange kind of uh, man-in-a-suit solid form and starts killing them left, right, and centre. Yeah, that's pretty much it, Andy. Yeah, you were, you were right. So, yeah, a bunch of Nazis commanded by Jürgen Pranjnau, assigned to guard in a Romanian castle, uh, and unknowingly release a demonic creature that's trapped within the walls. And yes, many of the soldiers begin to die in very mysterious and some particularly gruesome ways. That's pretty much the plot of The Keep. I can't utterly defend the keep in the way that I did, say, Bukuru Banzai. Even Michael Mann can't defend the keep. Exactly. And I think it's what was interesting about this film is the power of film magazines that came out at the time and that whetted your appetite in the way that social media and being able to see trailers and production photos months and months in advance. Uh, sometimes years in advance, and when you relied on things like Fangoria magazine mm. to tell you what was coming up. And this was one of those movies that had a very, very limited release and was always stuck in my 
imagination have been uh, an interesting, interesting looking movie. Now, I've got a kind of a, I wouldn't say a passion, but a love for sort of mixed genre horror films. So uh, stuff that's set in World War II or stuff that's set in the Old West. I like that kind of taking a monster film and setting it in, in, a, in a different background than, than one would expect in a, you know, a scary house. And yeah. I always I, I liked a lot of this film. Is it a piece of genius filmmaking? It could have been. It certainly could have been because Michael Mann originally produced a cut of this movie that was 210 minutes long. Yep. Yet he was only allowed to have a two-hour-long movie. And the screenings of the two-hour cut, from what I know, didn't come back particularly well. And eventually, against Mann's wishes, uh, it got cut to a 96-minute version. So there are cuts that resulted in continuity mistakes, obvious jumps in soundtracks, in scenes unresolved plots so there's huge plot holes in it so yes it is a heck of a mess of a film the film after looking into it was plagued with production problems it was plagued with budget problems it ran over budgets it ran over filming schedule and then visual effects supervisor wally Vivers, who had worked magnificently on 2001 a space odyssey and, and superman he was on superman the movie had an idea for all the effects but sadly passed away only two weeks into post-production and no one knew what his ideas were for the effect sequences towards the end with man himself having to take on the task leading to quite a disjointed effects style and he filmed several new endings without the original crew and cinematographer who'd all been let go of their contracts by that point and it makes it a garbled mess. It'd be interesting to see his 210-minute cut that he originally delivered to see whether it makes a lot more sense because the 96 minutes that we got in the end, it's choppy, it jumps throughout, it's incoherent. The acting is atrocious at parts. And this is from some quality actors. I mean, Gabriel Byrne, Ian McKellen, Scott Glenn, all good names. But there's moments when you just think, was that a scene that they actually did a reshoot of, but they forgot to put the reshot version in? Is this just the first cut or is this just a like a test footage? The ADR on some of it is awful. And that's only on the bits that they've actually bothered with the ADR because there's some moments of the film that the sound mixing, which wasn't completed itself. There was, a, again, the budget constraints stripped away the chance to really give it some justice. And there's moments that feel... They sound like a BBC play of the day on TV. It's got that echoey distortion to it and just feels like it's a stage production. And it just makes it for a jarring contrast. The soundtrack by score by Tangerine Dream. I have to say it's a great Tangerine Dream score. Tangerine Dream do some magnificent electronic synth work, but it doesn't fit this film at all. It feels like it's it, he's just took something from Miami Vice and slapped it in on um, uh, what's supposed to be a dark horror, and it doesn't fit. And there's one sequence in particular. When the evil is first let out, the guard who's on night duty with his long cloak on, like hooded up, and then there's the light of the uh, silver cross shining, and he walks towards it in slow motion with Tangerine Dream playing over it. And I was just like, <laughs> what, what am I watching? And then when he take, like when he's running away from it, is it starting to explode out? And it's basically, he's running with like what looks like a cape flowing behind him with a light shone behind him. And I was like, am I watching Batman? <laughs> and everything was just, it felt cheap. The core story, I love, I'm the same as you. I love any haunted house things that use a different environment, that it's not just a gothic mansion that, you know, well, look at Candyman. Candyman yeah. is a haunted house in a tower block. You know, I love using that kind of thing, but 
you can tell that all the interferences and all the chops and all the changes on this film damaged what could have been a really good film. I think that's the interesting thing. We know that there is somewhere a version of this film which is not the film that we've got. And I think that's what's always intrigued me about The Keep. There are elements of The Keep that I, I like an awful lot. And there are other elements where, as you said, it makes absolutely no sense. Now, Mann has talked about his disappointment with the film. It's not a film that uh, stands out on his uh, on his resume, shall we say. But there were all, there was always little bits and pieces of it, kind of the, the hints of the mythos and the hints of, of this sort of the enigma that's going on within the story. Um, but it isn't just delivered. Now, uh, it could have been something visually spectacular. It could have been something so much more. And I've always liked the fact that there's, there's just something about the keep that that draws me back to it. I think that its 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 ambitions are better than the movie, and I think that's what I like about it. And I always like to see something done by Michael Mann because previously to this, he had done Thief, which I mm. put as as probably my favorite, just around almost equal to Manhunter, as being uh, one of his greatest films. So we know he's got a visual style, and we know that he he can do interesting things now. What I've always been surprised of, whether that's maybe that the, the footage doesn't exist, but Michael Mann is renowned for going back and tampering with his own movies. He's he's done it with uh, Manhunter on more than one occasion. I'm always surprised he's never gone back to this film. Yeah, he's kind of disowned this film. I think it's because of all the interference that he had throughout it. It just left him very negative about the whole experience and maybe he just doesn't want to explore that negativity from his life. I mean, to have a film that you wanted to be over three hours long and get told it needs to be two hours and then when you reluctantly deliver that, they then say, well, we're going to cut it behind your back to take it down to 96 minutes because test audiences didn't like it. Now it's like, of course they didn't like it. You've taken a three hour film and reduced it by an hour. You've made it incoherent as it is. And the further cuts made it a mess. The fact that the musical score cuts and jumps as a result of these last trims, because it was already layered in. And rather than re relaying it, they just went, ah, just snip those scenes out. Just snip this bit out. It feels like it. It feels like an industrial sabotage to his film yeah. more than anything else. It feels like the studio sabotaged it. And yeah, it would be nice for him to go back and revisit it. But every time he's been asked about it in interviews, every time it's been referred to, he's kind of moved the conversation on as quickly as he could. Because, like you said, just before this, he had Thief. Straight afterwards, he gave us Manhunter, and they both showcase what quality he can bring to films. So this is like a blip. It's a dip. It is CV that, you know, it's, it's like when I used to work in a chicken factory. I don't include it on a CV these days because it doesn't represent me who I am today. It's, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and it's something that it always meant that Michael Mann has been much more grounded in his storytelling, while this is in every way much more of a, uh, a flight of fancy. You know, he's, he's dealing in genre. He's never stretched into that before. And maybe this film kicked it out of him. Yeah, I will, I will never understand the love for this film. I think. Yeah, with yourself, you watched it. It's one of those that you watched at a certain age. Yeah, you were caught yeah, I, up I, in it. I don't love this film. I'm, I, I think it's an, uh, an interesting failure for all the reasons that 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 you've mentioned. I think it, there's something intriguing about it, and I think possibly, while it's it is utterly incomprehensible, there is something I always found interesting about the core idea of it. And perhaps with everything that I'd read and everything that I knew about the production. 
I'm always kind of hoping that when I watch it, I'll find some other bit of connecting tissues. There's something intriguing within everything that's wrong mm. in, in this movie. And the ideas that work in it are really clever and interesting ideas, but we never see them fulfilled, yeah. sadly. I think that's fair. And if you really want to see The Keep, how do you find it, Andy? Uh, it's available for rental on pretty much all the services, or you can buy it on home release if you really want to add that to your collection. It's an interesting failure, guys. We don't always talk about the great films, but there is, I'll be honest, there is something in there that you can pick out and go, you know what, I could see what he was trying to do. Yeah. And for that alone, it's, it's worth us talking about as a deep dive. And of course, we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So Andy has been doing the Lord's work as ever and has had chance to see films that, Frankly, I've not had a chance to see, but I do have a lot to talk about. Andy, what have we got for reviews this week? So let's start off with the new release on Netflix that I've been quite looking forward to because I enjoyed the first film, and that's Enola Holmes 2. I'm looking for a girl. She worked at the match factory. Enola Holmes. She's a detective. Looks like she blow over in the wind. She discovered something that powerful people want to hide, and it's deadly. Sherlock, why are you here? Is it my case or your own? Both. Seems our cases are connected. The game has found its feet again. Extortion, blackmail, corruption. I fear she's tangled with the wrong people. <gasps> Posh girls like you don't belong in this fight. Posh or not, one thing I am good at is fighting. She likes calls in trouble, doesn't she? Don't be so desperate to prove yourself, Anola. But it's important. After the success of the first film, a second film was inevitable. And Enola Holmes 2 is infused with the same sense of fun and energy that the first film had, as Sherlock Holmes' younger sister finds herself once more on a case to demonstrate that she's every bit the detective that Sherlock is. Enola tries setting up a detective agency, but finds that all potential clients are put off either by her gender, her age, or simply the fact that she isn't her brother. However, a match girl comes to her and asks her to help find her missing sister, Sarah Chapman. And any history nuts out there will immediately see where all this was going. Starting a case to look into the match factory she worked at and the wealthy industrialists that appeared to be up to something. Her path, once more, crosses with Sherlock, who's struggling with his own case, whose mysteries appear to be intertwined with Enola's. The Enola Holmes films serve well as simple detective novels, but they excel in the delivery. Millie Bobby Brown as Enola is a tour de force, and once more, she's breaking the fourth wall whilst uncovering clues, attending balls, or fleeing over rooftops. Brown throws her everything into the part, and the energy that she brings serves the dynamic of the rather tropish film well. Henry Cavill gets a bit more to do as Sherlock in this film, and he makes for a marvellous interpretation of the character. His fame and popularity as a solver of crimes gives him a slight arrogance, demonstrated by his manner of breezing into crime scenes, simply telling the police guard on duty, don't be ridiculous, as they try to stop him. However, he meets his match against Superintendent Grail, played marvellously by David Thewlis, who doesn't take any of that nonsense and always seems to be around when something bad happens. Louis Partridge returns to Tewkesbury, and whilst he doesn't lend much to the plot this time, he does give a slight emotional core aspect for Enola to connect with. Helena Bonham Carter is, of course, on hand as Eudoria Holmes, and Adil Akhtar is back as Lestrade. All the cast brings something fun, and that's the key thing. Enola Holmes films are fun, family fun at that, and they deliver exactly what you expect of them. The mystery plays out pretty much as you expect, and the twists and turns are heavily signposted, but that's not a problem. 
when the journey is so much fun. I've not had a chance to watch this yet because uh, it's a, it's going to be our family film night. We do a family film night every week and uh, our circumstances this week, we've not had a chance. Though we did, the boy and I, and hold your breath, Andy, sat through a Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Oh. You were so right. The kid loved it. I've got to be honest, <laughs> the kid really did like it. I sat there in amazement. It, it, it does, I'll give you one point, though, that uh, I think we may disagree on. I thought it was slightly better than Venom. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was worse. Could I honestly say I enjoyed it, if I was being honest? No, absolutely <laughs> not. That was all. Anyway, yeah, looking forward to Enola Holmes, too. And what you've said seems to be pretty much what I've heard about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, Millie Bobby Brown has become a bit of a force to be reckoned with. She's making some very smart decisions for someone so young. Yep. Uh, second film that I've got landed on Amazon, My Policeman. So how does it make you feel? You can sense the waves. You know how strong they are. Like swimming in rough surf. You feel they could crush you. Or take you under. You just have to let it take hold of you. A story of forbidden love in the 50s, My Policeman focuses on Tom, Harry Styles, Marion, Emma Corrin, and Patrick, David Dawson, who formed a close friendship during the decade with Tom and Marion tying the knot and marrying. However, the closeness between Tom and Patrick grows stronger and the pair start an illicit affair in a time when homosexuality was illegal and Tom was a policeman. As the film flashes back and forth between the 50s and the 90s, where in the 90s an ill Patrick played by Rupert Everett is being cared for by Tom played by Linus Roach and Marion Gina McKay, we explore the burgeoning relationship the impact it had on the three at the time and the long-term impact of love decades later. My Policeman is a rather subdued affair, which smartly skirts around sensationalisation, keeping the film very grounded and rooted. The cast mostly do fine in their parts. Styles is still not quite there as a leading man, but he does a reasonably commendable job in the part of the conflicted Tom. It's in the older cast that the film picks up, with Everett, Roche and McKee, all demonstrating the years of anguish and regrets at how events transpired all those decades earlier. The direction by Michael Grandage is pretty standard, and the film feels generally as though you've already seen this tale told many, many times. And this version is merely retreading very well-worn steps. But it is serviceable, and whilst not something that says anything new or will ever demand a revisit, time certainly wasn't wasted in watching it. I've not. It just feels like this has been done so many other times yeah with better stories and it amazes me that it's been done again i remember a very very good bbc play from years back which seemed to tackle more or less the same subject and i know a lot of people who uh, some of my students in particular are big harry styles fans who basically went to see it because it was Harry Styles or waiting to see this because it was Harry Styles. But is he promising as a young actor, Andy? He is. He's showing, he shows promise. It's like I said when I reviewed um, Don't Worry Darling, that in that film he wasn't as bad as some people were saying. He, he showed some moments that it's like, yeah, you can be something. He just needs to be moulded. He needs to have the right director to really mould him and bring him out as as a screen presence. I don't think he'll ever be an A-lister, but I think he's got a 
good chance to be like a support role, like a solid support in a lot of films coming up. And finally, uh, for my film picks this week, you can now rent it on all the major streaming services in the UK. And that's the new adaptation of Hellraiser. Well, we've known about this for some time that it was due. Uh, A lot of speculation. It was going to go back to the beginnings of Hellraiser and open it up to a, a new audience. Has it done so, Andy? You know my thoughts on the original Hellraiser. I think it's a mixed bag. I always like the visual style. I'm assuming that it's keeping that visual style and and doing something new with it. It's time. Recovering addict Riley, played by Odessa Azium, is convinced by her boyfriend Trevor, played by Drew Starkey, to break into a warehouse to steal from a mystery safe. However, within the safe, they find a strange puzzle box, which when solved, draws out the Cenobites, who take explorers of the extremes of pain and pleasure to hell. When Riley solves the first stage of the puzzle, leading to Trevor being taken, she, her brother, and flatmates seek answers to the mystery box, leading them to the mansion of hedonistic millionaire Roland Voigt. The Hellraiser franchise has seen a multitude of sequels over the years to ever-deteriorating effect and quality. But there's a lot of hope on this one that this would be the film to bring the franchise back where it belongs, within the upper echelons of the horror world. It's not a remake, it's more of a reboot. It doesn't tread on the toes of the original films, and indeed it builds on an already established lore and imagery. But it doesn't depend on those earlier films either, and it serves as an entry point for new audiences to the franchise. The cast are fine, not great, just fine. But anyone who saw The Night House, which was director David Bruckner's previous work, will know that characters come second over location and atmosphere. They are mostly just plot points used to set up events, something that could likely be said about many of the Hellraiser films, to be honest. However, that said, Odessa Azion does a solid enough job in the lead role as Riley, battling her own internal demons of addiction, whilst now facing demons from another plane of existence. And she gives us someone to care for, even if we don't really care for her actual plight. But Hellraiser survives on the horror, and here we have the wonderfully visceral horror of those earlier films brought vividly up to date. Certainly not one for the squeamish, as the characters experience the blessings of pain and pleasure doled out by the Cenobites. The film doesn't shy away from pulling on the nerves, literally in one case. The Cenobites themselves are stylistically drawn from the pages of the original novella. Here, given an androgynous nature, with Jamie Clayton's Hell Priest, a.k.a. Pinhead, casting a mesmerising presence. Running it around two hours, it maybe could have been trimmed a little to aid the pacing, but in general, it works enough as a delightful slice of dark horror, with enough ties to the earlier films, especially the first two, thematically, to appease the majority of Hellraiser fans. All right, well, that sounds promising. I, I will get to see it based on your review. I assumed it would go to stars on Disney Plus because isn't it a Hulu production? It is a Hulu production. I think because I, I know that Disney Plus is dropping more and more adult content. I think the fact that this is a very visceral 18 has made them a bit hesitant to just drop this into the Disney Plus service. It'll probably land there on there eventually. But in the meantime, it's available to rent from all services such as Play or Amazon or Apple for about £3.49. Okay, I will get to see this. Uh, um, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. As, as I said, when we did the deep dive on it, there were elements of, of it that I really liked. It didn't fully work for me. And I think 
I'm more open to this, as you said, forget about the sequels. So that's the film reviews out of the way. Let's mention the awesome return of What We Do in the Shadows, season four. <laughs> oh, wow. Look at you. <laughs> that is the baby Colin Robinson, I assume. I can mold this boy into the most interesting adult there has ever been. He really loves musical theater. What have the dark Lord wrought? This is the big opening of our nightclub. We want the drinks to be very expensive, so then we attract rich humans. Rich humans are basically like veil, conceptually repulsive, but so buttery on my tongue. So what we do in the shadows has been running on the BBC, and then we know that it was landing on Disney+. Plus. I think we all were waiting to see if it appeared on the BBC first, but it landed this week not as expected with the full full series drop. They, they're dropping it as a weekly a weekly drop right now. And I've only watched the first episode. I don't know how many you've seen, but oh man, it was like catching up with a group of friends. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the first two episodes. Uh, I, I'm loving that it's going to be a week. I, mean, I tended to watch it a couple of episodes a week as it was anyway. I wouldn't have binged it. I, I don't want to binge something like what we do in the shadows because I think that the humor is so good that you don't want to become numb to the humor. And if you watch too many in one go, you'll start to not really get it. It's great. I mean, Harvey Gillen as um, Guillermo is just going from strength to strength. I absolutely adore that character. And I have fallen completely in love with Natasia Dimitru as Nadja now. I am completely <laughs> besotted by her. She can hypnotize me and steal my blood anytime that she wants. But I think the shining thing from the first episode, and it continues through into the second episode, is Mark Prosk's uh, Colin Robinson uh, demon baby, basically. <laughs> yeah. Colin Robinson, um, what an amazing The thing character. that crawled out of de dead Colin Robinson. <laughs> I just I just giggled all the way. It's one of the few shows that makes me actually laugh out loud. You know, With a lot of comedies, you kind of laugh and go along with it. But there is this boisterous laughing from our household when what we do in the shadows. It's something that, that me and my other half watch. We, we both love it so, so much. It's, it's just a great show, beautifully written. Uh, beautifully performed. What a, an amazing, amazing uh, cast that every week deliver. The magnificent Matt Berry, of course. Still, still stealing. Steals episode one for me. Steals everything. Every episode that he's ever been in. It's just one line from Matt Berry can just take a whole scene in a different direction. Absolutely love it. What I loved is that the last season left it with them all separated and all going off on their own adventures. And then this series just basically within the first five minutes, like, hey, they're all back together again. Yeah. And uh, I'd just deal with it. Kristen Shaw comes back in in the second episode as the guide and starts to get a bit more of a more of a presence. And it's one thing that I love about this series is that at the end of the first season, he went, that was really fun, but how far can they take this? And then the second season, they added more things in particularly uh, Guillermo becoming a vampire hunter. And it was like, okay, you did something fresh on the second series, but surely you're running out of ideas. And the third series did new things. And it's just like, okay, are you ever going to run out of ideas? And it's clear that they can't run out of ideas on this. No, it, They just keep reinventing it each series. And I am all for sticking around with this group going forwards. Who'd have thought that what was a great mock documentary film would spin off into an even better TV series? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's got its own identity. You can watch both of them and feel they're an extension of each other. It's not one of those where you go, oh, yeah, so they've recast, um, like MASH, for instance, and, hey, let's not ever knock MASH because it is probably yeah. the, the highlight of it. But it is so, so good. It is just brilliantly done. 
absolutely love it. If you've not watched What We Do in the Shadows, then really get on it. Um, start off with the film if you wish, but you don't need to start off with the film. You can jump straight into the series. All four seasons are on Disney+. Plus. I think a few of the seasons are still on BBC iPlayer because BBC still have the rights to the first three series, and enjoy one of the freshest comedies of recent years. Yeah, yeah. So from what we do in the shadows to what we do in a darkened cinema. Andy, what are you going to do in a darkened cinema this week? I think what we're both going to be doing this week in a darkened cinema and what most people worldwide are going to be doing is uh, crossing our arms and saying Wakanda forever. Yes, Because it's back. Black Panther, Wakanda forever. Is finally here. Yeah, been a lot of speculation as to where the series is going to go after the sad passing of Chadwick Boseman. Uh, word has been good. We're going to find out for ourselves as it's released on November the 11th. Yep, it's pretty much the only thing coming out at the cinemas this week. There will be some smaller films on independent cinemas, but the main cinemas, this is all that you're going to be getting. Uh, over on Now TV and Sky. Now, here's a film that, despite my aversion to the director, I've been I've heard so much about it that I'm going to sit and watch it. And that's Ambulance Drops on Now TV and Sky. Oh, the Michael Bay film that we didn't watch. Yes, um, I'm not. I'm always put off by Michael Bay, but I've heard that this was very much a stripped back Bay and it's not like his normal films. So I'll talk about that next week and let you know whether or not it was. And there's also Poker Face, which is the Russell Crowe thriller set in the world of high stakes poker. Over on Disney Plus, Zootropolis Plus, which is the spin-off Animated series from Zootropolis or Zootopia, depending on what part of the world you came from, lands this week. Over on Apple TV+, Plus, we've got Circuit Breakers, which is an anthology series, and that's all that I need to know. Anything that's an anthology series, I'm in. But it's set in the near future, using sci-fi as a backdrop to tell coming-of-age tales. Okay, So definitely, definitely in for it. And I've been waiting for this for a while, and I've mentioned it a few times. Mythic Quest Season 3 is finally arriving on Apple TV+, Plus this coming week. I've yet to get into Mythic Quest, but I've heard so many good things about it. So I, I'm up for that. Well worth binging through the first two seasons and get yourself ready for season three. And that's pretty much it on the streaming services this week. So that, folks, is just about it for this week's show. Of course, we'll be back next week when we're going to talk about uh, Wakanda Forever. But before we go, let's find out what our neat things are. Neat things, things that we've enjoyed, places we've been, things that we've done, that we've enjoyed so much so that we just have to talk about it. Andy, what's your neat thing? I'm going back to an old favourite here, Humble Bundle. Oh, always interesting, your Humble Bundle. That great little treasure trove of either video games, books, comics. And this week, they added in a Dynamic Forces Dynamite Comics 30th Anniversary Bundle. Okay, I've never been a a huge fan of Dynamite Comics. I do have some in my collection. It's not my go-to comic book publisher, but there have been, especially some of the pulp stuff that I really enjoy. Well, for £15.90, you can get a wealth of Red Sonja titles, which includes the celebrated Gail Simone run on the series. Follow her on Twitter. Very funny. Oh, I, I love her. She Twitter baits all the time. Yeah. She, she'll post out things to get a reaction, and I love her. She's marvellous. Uh, I love it when people try to pull her up, when, when she deliberately gets something wrong about a comic book character on Twitter. And people try to say, oh, tell me you don't know comics without saying, tell me you don't know comics. Yes, like, that's exactly the last <laughs> and one everyone, last everyone will just jump on them going... <laughs> Check her profile. She's written comics. <laughs> She's marvellous. Um, Dresden Files com- graphic novels in there. White Sand, Vampirella, Barbarella, Kiss the Demon, um, Lady Hell, and much, much more, including one that might tease you, um, the Alice Cooper 
graphic novel is in there. Yes, I've read that. It's great. 36 graphic novels for less than the price of two. £15.90 for 36 gra- graphic novels. Wow. I mean, for me, the Gail Simone Red Sonia and the Barbarella are enough to make me want to get this. The rest of them are just something that I can explore and delve into. I love Humble Bundle for when they do things like this. And they do it round celebrations of like, you know, they've done it for Image when it was on their their 30th and then 40th anniversaries, etc. They always tie in, basically getting the cream of the crop from the comic publishers to just give for a limited time. Uh, By the time this show airs, you'll still have about two weeks left to get on on this bundle. But HumbleBundle.com, head over there, pay your money. And you'll get a link for all the downloadable either PDFs or comic book format CBZs to downloads to whatever device you want to read them on. Personally, I prefer my Samsung tablet. It's about the same size as a comic book. And sit and immerse yourself in some great comics. Sounds great. I I might be counted in on that one. Uh, For this week, I've had two choices of neat things. Usually I'm I'm sort of gagging to find one, but I have two choices. And I'm going to probably leave one till next week rather than do them both. I had the opportunity this week to get uh, Sky Cinema free for a certain amount of time due to me being with Sky since the first (laughs) satellite dish came out, I think. (laughs) And what I got as part of that deal was Paramount Plus. And it finally gave me the opportunity to join in with Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I know you talked about. So if you are a bit of a Trek fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you are not, then the premise is simple. Set before the Captain Kirk era, we meet Captain Christopher Pike, who appeared in the original Star Trek pilot. And then that got cut into uh, a show known as The Menagerie, uh, which was the only Star Trek two-parter. And it explores the previous adventures of the USS Enterprise. Uh, and of course, they explore strange new worlds throughout the galaxy decades before the original series. So it's a modernistic take on on this series. It's got episodic storytelling, uh, uses some of the 1960s designs and features um, the narration very much like the opening credits of the original series. And it's a blast. It's an absolute blast. It's the Star Trek I've always wanted to see explored, right from seeing the Menagerie, right through to when they released the cage, the original pilot, as a a one-off. I've always wanted to know about Captain Christopher Pike, and it's been a bit of a Star Trek holy grail, and I've had a blast. I've had a blast for one particular reason, and that's Anson Mount, the star as Chris Pike. He is such a charming leading man that no matter what he does everything feels effortless now they sort of played this off with star trek discovery as a bit of a spin-off it's an interesting take because it doesn't drop the idea of what will potentially happen to captain christopher pike and if you've seen the menagerie you know um it looks great of course it looks great and now all modern star trek looks great but it does have that kind of almost 60s throwback look to it as well right down to the original sort of color scheme uniforms I'm three or four episodes in and the writing isn't as good as the cast or the premise, though I do like the idea of uh, single strand stories that, again, echo back to the original Star Trek. But I am having a great time with it. Uh, Lots of fan service in the right way. I'm looking at you, Doctor Who. And it's such a a well-conceived series. Absolutely loving Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And I hope that I can get to the end before the uh, current subscription runs out. You loved it, didn't you, Andy? Oh, yes. I can't wait for season two. 
absolutely looking forward to it. I've been a fan of all the modern era of um, Trek anyway. I've taken the redevelopments, but like you say, this is like, this feels like classic Trek. This feels like it's the Trek show that we always wanted ever since, you know, those three seasons of uh, the original series. It's great. And Anson Mount, completely agree. He's an absolute charm. And that's it, folks, for this week and this episode of The Film File. As ever, thank you for joining us. Please spread the word. Let's get those uh, listenerships up because the more you come and join us, the more that we can do. But no matter what, it's always our pleasure to deliver you a film file. And I can't do this alone because it would be just me talking to an empty computer with no one on the other (laughs) side uh, and not recording it. I can't do this without Andy Meakin. Thank you very much. Uh, I couldn't do this without yourself because it it wouldn't feel right me just uh, recording something where I'm talking and no one responding. And no I do like you the... back from your rants. That's what you're trying I to do, say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need you need to rein me in every now and then, and every now and then you throw me a curveball by mentioning something that I've got no <laughs> knowledge of, and uh, it just on. keeps me keeps me on me. Yeah, <laughs> keeps me on my toes. We'll be back again next week with our usual looks at films, and we'll definitely be talking about Black Panther and our usual banter. So we'll see you again next week. And Andy, your sentimental suffering makes me sick. And kicking off It is, but why not? (laughs) We don't have to be a one theme show only (laughs) Then what you can shake your big lizard at That sounds rude It does Uh, sound rude (laughs) Uh, But but moving on But it's staying in the show. show Not a lot of news this week But whatever news you've got it's good news for the film industry. That's, that's crap. Hands up, film industry. You've got to be pretty happy with yourself. You've outlasted the letters. <laughs> that's going on the end of the show. <laughs> Insert the trailer there. Yeah. Oh, I am the trailer. I am spooky. And we're all drawn to the keep. It is trailers, yeah. <laughs> For our international listeners, we do the accent of your choice. <laughs> Not very well, though. But uh, <laughs> Name we, the do, we do an accent. <laughs> Written and directed by Malcolm Mann, you ask? Michael I do Mann. not know you, of this film. You just, you just called him Malcolm. <laughs> Did I? Malcolm Mann. Yeah. It's his brother. That's why he never got a really poor release. Is he from the Brotherhood of Man? Yes. <laughs> hey. He's one man above them all. <laughs>